they are more likely to be supportive of rolling back the length of a school day, the requirements on teachers and educators to be in buildings. And that to me means that there's a huge hypocrisy at the heart of the way Democrats talk about the issue of childcare. Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Corey Bradford. Well, Corey, uh, I actually tried something new last night. I tried this thing called bouldering. And there's this place called Brooklyn Boulders. You just like climb stuff. And I'm afraid of heights. And I think I overcame at least my, my fear of intermediate heights. How high up did you go? I don't know. Maybe like 50 feet. Pretty maybe. high up. That sound right? Yeah. Yeah. I've never I've never done the whole rock climbing thing. I did I think I tried it when I was a freshman in college and I failed, so I haven't done it. <laughs> like like failed, like I guess you're still here. So Yeah, no, I didn't fall from a really high height, but I did fall. Yeah. It just traumatized me. I mean, well <laughs> I wasn't it was they it wasn't I wasn't secured safely and, and everything. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well I'm glad you're okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well what marginally, do we, <laughs> marginally okay. what do we have for today? Coming up, a teacher in Tennessee fired for teaching about white privilege. Did he deserve it? And what about a proposed four-day school week? I know Ravi here will have some thoughts on that story. We also got a Democrat in Illinois introducing a bill that would force unvaccinated COVID patients to pay their own hospital bills. Good idea or hypocritical? We take an inside look at a growing humanitarian catastrophe that's not getting nearly enough attention. The horrific conditions in Alabama prisons. The situation is spiraling out of control and we'll explain why. But first things first, Robbie, there was a big hearing on cryptocurrency in Congress uh, yesterday. And I know you were following this a big time because I think you own some crypto, don't you? Yeah, I do. And so I guess that's a disclosure. So yeah, maybe I mean, everything I say, I, but lawyers. I'm not a crypto maximalist. Like I do think that there is going to be some regulation coming. The question is what? Mm -hmm. And that was really the, the subject of this hearing. And mm -hmm. so I think it was five or six CEOs of some of the major crypto companies mm -hmm. testified for like five or six hours. And it was the House Financial Services Committee. Mm -hmm. And what was notable is that clearly most of the people in Congress who are participating in these hearings didn't really know much about cryptocurrency. And Representative Patrick McHenry, he kind of pointed this out pretty early in the hearing. Let's look at this clip. I asked my friends, my policymaker friends here on the Hill, this question. Do you know enough about this technology to have a serious debate? I think the answer to that is no. Uh, it's a definitive no. Yeah. They don't even know how to work Facebook and Twitter. So how right. are they going to know about the intricacies of something like cryptocurrency? Right. Like I think people might remember some of the, the central hearings around Facebook where, mm -hmm. you know, senators were having printouts of different posts and things like that and just mm -hmm. didn't understand the basic technology. Mm -hmm. This is that to the hundredth degree. And some people will say it's about Bitcoin, it's cryptocurrency, but it's really about this whole suite of technologies that people call Web3, right? Things like other cryptographic technologies, NFTs, other digital assets. And it all has to do with these things that are decentralized. Mm -hmm. And it's just a whole new set of technology that I don't think too many people fully understand. And I think what makes it interesting, it's a political Rorschach test because it's like a thing that just tests people's political assumptions. So most Democrats are lining up saying we need more regulation of this. And most Republicans are saying we need less. And I, I don't think most of them even understand what it is. But I'm on the side of, I think, some of these companies, not because I own some crypto, but because they're making the argument that, hey, like right now, we're subject to a bunch of different regulatory bodies, potentially, right? Mm -hmm. There's just so much uncertainty. Mm -hmm. So it could be the SEC because sometimes we're going to be treated like securities. Sometimes yeah. it could be the CFTC because we're treated like commodities. commodities. And, you know, who knows who else? Because whenever you have 
ambitious bureaucrats and politicians, sometimes whether it's U.S. attorneys, people at the Department of Justice, people at Treasury, sometimes people want to make a name for themselves by holding accountable companies. And I think these companies just want to know what the future is going to look like and they want to participate in that discussion. So I'm sympathetic to their desire to bring some kind of common sense to this debate. And the CEO of Coinbase, one of the big crypto companies, proposed something that made sense to me, which is that we create a new standalone entity for digital currencies. And for me, this makes sense because a lot of the people in Treasury, in the CFTC, in the SEC are not people with technological backgrounds who can even understand these technologies. So let's create a new entity with people who really understand the technology and empower them to work through the, the difficult issues of regulation here. Yeah, I mean, when you think about regulation in America, think about like a small business. Think about every single thing that they have to deal with as far as regulatory bodies. And it's just a small business. So something as huge and wide ranging as crypto. I mean, you're talking about potentially 40 or 50 different regulatory agencies that they would have to go through to become effectively regulated by our government. But like when I hear crypto, I I hear like Elon Musk talking about Dogecoin and stuff like that. And I have have all these friends from back in Alabama. They're like, oh man, you got to get Sheeb or you got to get this or that. And I'm like, and I'm like, the people who are getting into it, they don't seem to really know how this stuff is working either. So is there like a threat of the, you know, people who are so undereducated about this technology getting into it? Does that threaten it and make it more volatile? Yeah, I think it depends on one's theory of government, right? Mm-hmm. I tend to believe that people should be able to take risks and mm-hmm. should bear the consequences of those risks. So if you invest in a shit coin and you didn't do your research on that, then you should deal with the consequences of a dip, right? And mm-hmm. this is like the 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 debate around GameStop, for example, which, oh, yeah. what was the government going to do there? That was a security, right? Yeah. And it went up and down. Some people got cleared up. Some people made a lot of money. Mm-hmm. And there's just very little. There's certain things that regulation could do, like market manipulation. And there's certain there's certain things that our, our current regulations can do to stop that kind of activity. But by and large, you have to you know look at the fundamentals of something and say, do you trust it or not? And crypto is not much different. Now, it's complicated. Very and much it, so. It takes expertise to understand it, which is why I think people should be careful about it. But I don't think we need the nanny state saying, all right, you can, like, I'm going to tell you whether you can buy Doge or not or whatever. I think what's going to happen is you're going to have these third parties like the exchanges and other um, entities involved in crypto that people are going to grow to trust more or less than others. Yeah. And- I think that there was something notable that happened on the Hill, which was that AOC, for example, who's on the House Financial Services Committee and was in this hearing, she asked, I think, what was a really important question in this debate. Let's let's hear her. What do you say to the folks that say, basically, this doesn't seem like a new financial system per se, but really an extension um, or perhaps expansion of our present one? So this is the central question yeah. I get from a lot of people, which is what makes this technology different than uh, the existing banking system? Or is it just yeah. like, we? because for instance, like when was the last time you exchanged paper money? It's not very common anymore. So, so much of our currency is digital. Mm-hmm. So I think most people understand like what makes this particular type of digital currency any different than Venmoing your friend or paying something on PayPal or even sending a Zelle or something like that. Yeah. I think what makes it different and to answer AOC's question is that right now, a lot of those transactions that I just described are controlled by a small group of people who get chartered to run banks, right? So if you ever watch the show Billions, for example, yeah. like the whole really crappy current season of Billions that just wrapped up was about about acts trying to get a bank charter. And like, this is kind of corrupt stuff because we yeah. only give so many of them out, which means that the power is really concentrated right now. And that also means that in the global system, a lot of people are unbanked because 
like these, this idea of what it means to run a bank and to be able to open a bank account is actually, uh, there are high barriers to entry. So there are uh, currently 1.7 billion people who are estimated to be unbanked in the wow. world right now. And so to me, the people who have the most to lose to answer her question are the current people who run our financial system because they're the ones who get the fees. They're the people who clear transactions. They're the ones who deal with the compliance and they're the lawyers who, yeah. who clear all these transactions. So there's a tax on everything that the, the few people who get to own these bank charters and that participate in that system get. Mm -hmm. In a more decentralized system, the potential, and I want to emphasize potential, mm -hmm. is that the, the gains are realized by more people. Mm -hmm. It's more efficient, so there are less fees that are tied to regulation and just from the scarcity of it all. And who gets to gain from that? The 1.7 billion unbanked, potentially, right? Potentially. But this hearing is all about how do we do this right? And I think that's the central question that that Congress needs to ask. I'm just worried that they don't have the expertise to, to answer it effectively. Yeah, it sounds like you're an advocate for there being a central regulatory body instead of them having to go through SEC and all these different bodies at one time. Yeah, one body. And I think if you line up the, the different interests here, what's the government's interests and what are the company's interests? I think you've got the government who's interested, number one, in transparency. And they're interested in transparency for two reasons, really. They want to tax they want to tax the gains from these, which yep. is understandable because like any time you have anything of value that increases, that's just our system. Like you pay taxes on yeah, that. And the government's going to want their piece. Yeah, and it's just a little tricky to track it down, right? But that's always been a problem anytime there's anything new, right? For example, like you can you can hide a million dollars of cash in your house and the government doesn't know it, know about it until you exchange that with somebody else. So like what the government needs to focus on is the the point of exchange and and that's where they've mixed things up a little bit like so for example in uh, the infrastructure bill one early proposal that some democrats were pushing was to tax the bitcoin miners oh wow uh, or at least no, to let me clarify to push some disclosure requirements on the on the miners i see and i think it misunderstood the role of miners they're not yeah. the people clearing these transactions yeah, exactly. right they're like the, the the they're not in the chain of custody mm -hmm. that the government is concerned about mm -hmm. But their transparency is also important for the government because of crime, right? Because yeah, like right now, this is like where if you if you're in the underworld, yeah, that's the one that's big the main use thing case they're right using now. For, yeah. But so those are really important pieces for the government. But then there are other like kind of less good goals from the government. Number one is like hegemony. Like one thing you saw in this this hearing is that some of the Republican senators laying down there as their goal, basically, all right, well, we want stable coins. We want to, we want to support stable coins. We want that to be a, a central part of this. Stable coins are pegged to the US dollar. And, yeah. and basically what they're saying is we want to maintain the primacy of the dollar. As an American, I actually like that. But there are some people who are the billions and billions of people who don't live in America. I think that's not their goal. They don't really care about American hegemony, mm -hmm. but also a lot of the libertarian kind of thinkers who are pro crypto. I don't think they're interested in that either. And then you have control as a goal, right? China, for example, has been really critical and cracking down on yeah. a lot of these cryptocurrencies, in part because they can't control they it. They can't control And it. they want to control it. So those are bad government goals. Mm -hmm. And then you have a whole host of things that the industry wants. But I think by and large, AOC, I think like Democrats in general are biased towards regulation. But I think they should ask themselves, like, don't strangle something that actually can make this system more equitable. But I think a part what she reacts to is the culture of cryptocurrency. Like the yeah. people who buy and talk about cryptocurrency tend to be associated with the right wing. So I think Democrats are responding in part to that.
Yeah, it's kind of a populist thing. You yeah. Know? It's really a pop- populist thing as far as the people that I see that are associated with crypto. And there's so much out there, like you said. It doesn't really, it, it seems to be just like the wild, wild west of currency yeah. right now. It's really interesting. As long as they don't put taxes on MegaCoin, <laughs> then I'll be fine because that's the only crypto I'm investing in. Do you in. actually own MegaCoin? Uh, no, it's worth like 0.001 cent now or something is, like is that. It so yeah, uh, it's, it's pretty bad. But I think that's the key here is that I think she associated it with like a Rogan-esque kind of yeah. like Elon Musk group of people. But I think what's wrong with that? Like, I think like, I think people need to take their political blinders off and say like, what, why are people excited about this? There's definitely going to be hysteria. There are going to be crashes. We've endured many yeah. like ups and downs of this. There are going to be some coins that go to zero. Uh, there are some people who like this for the wrong reasons, but I think you should kind of just treat these arguments objectively and say, all right, like there's like a left wing and right wing overlap here when it comes to decentralization of finance, where I think there's just a lot of common interest here. Yeah. All right. So moving on to this story that took place in Tennessee. Teacher Matthew Hahn, who was fired from a rural Tennessee high school after teaching high school kids about white privilege. Basically a teacher. You've worked in, you've worked, not only have you worked in schools before, but you've worked in schools in Tennessee before. Yeah, I was a school principal and superintendent in Tennessee. Yeah, Yeah. so so this story, I'm sure you have some strong thoughts about it. It was a teacher, had been working for, I believe, nearly a decade in a school system in Tennessee, kind of a progressive teacher. And he started teaching lessons on white privilege, started getting some complaints about it, said he would stop, eventually just kept going, kept going. And now he has been fired from school for teaching about white privilege. It was a white teacher teaching a mostly white class about white privilege and he got fired for it. Um, do you think that's right? Yeah, I think like obviously so much of of one's perception of the story is wrapped up in the, the big Washington Post article about mm-hmm. this. And mm-hmm. so I think I, I'm basing my opinion on what was in that article. And so it's possible that they either missed certain context or mm-hmm. gotten certain things wrong. But assuming what's in this article is correct, mm-hmm. this teacher has been teaching this lesson for a long time, yeah. th- this kind of lesson for yeah. a long time, and was warned multiple times to stop for various reasons, and I think committed to stopping, mm-hmm. uh, and then kept doing it. And yeah. so I'm of like many minds of this. Uh, I think that there's an accountability part of just committing to do something and not doing it mm-hmm. to your superiors in a public school system. But my general sense here is that I have problems with the way he taught things. I think he could have taught things with, like he could have offered opened it up to more debate within yeah. the classroom. More he could have brought approach. more nuance. Like you're as a teacher, you're not there to insert your politics, right? Mm-hmm. You you can introduce different ideas and have students debate it. So I have issues with the way he taught it, but I. I always get a little worried about firing people because of this kind of stuff. Cause it's like really hard to fire teachers most of the time yeah, in America. As then. it should be. Yeah. The way I look at it is you said something interesting when you said that this teacher had done this before. And it seems like it hadn't been as much of a problem before. Right. What it reminds me of is when I was in high school, I had a teacher, a high school a history teacher who was pretty liberal and everybody knew it. And he taught history somewhat from a progressive standpoint. Now, he did teach opposing viewpoints. You know, he talked about what this is what conservatives thought in 1870 or whatever. Right. So he so it wasn't just like one sided, but you could tell from his personal standpoint that he was pretty progressive and he let everybody know. And nobody had a problem with it back in like 2006, 2007. Right. Because the culture war wasn't as hot back then. And now because we're in the midst of this culture war, and we're constantly going back and forth about these types of issues. It's becoming a bigger issue. I just spoke with my former teacher a couple of days ago and he was telling me that 
you know, he's had to, he's been called, a, you know, a person that's spreading a liberal agenda just for implying that having voter ID laws in certain areas could be considered a poll tax, which is, right. a, which is, you know, you can have a debate about that. And uh, he had kids saying, oh, you're trying to push a liberal agenda. Yeah. And that's something he, he never would have, that's a criticism he never would have got 10 years ago. Right. And I think that part of this is if this were strictly a local matter, you get mm -hmm. the sense that the town would work this out. Because there's so many anecdotes in this article about how everybody knows each other by name. They know mm -hmm. the teacher. And, you know, I get the sense that people like there would have gotten into a coffee shop and said, all right, you know, Mr. So-and-so, like, don't do it again. And coffee like, that's shop. basically what's been happening. Yeah. Um, coffee shop in Tennessee, they would have gotten a bar or <laughs> and they would have had this discussion. <laughs> or the Hunt's Brothers pizza. But yeah. The, uh, <laughs> but, uh, but uh, what I think has happened is that these debates have gotten nationalized and yeah. people have lost their sort of grace in the local setting Absolutely. to figure things out. And now things just immediately, like, oh, it's now CRT. Mm -hmm. And now- That's what he was accused yeah. of teaching, even though he never defined what he was teaching as CRT, but that's what he was accused of teaching. Right. And I, I'm with you. I don't think in the absence of that national debate, I don't think this guy gets fired. I think mm -hmm. it's just a conversation locally. And it just, it that part worries me. It's just yeah. that like- it used to be that you could just figure this kind of stuff out. Mm -hmm. It's also like, I think, but I do think context changes, right? Like when does history become politics, right? That's the kind of line as a teacher. I think you can teach history. Uh, and now I do think that there are certain members of the right who don't want an accurate reading of history. That's a whole separate discussion, but you can teach history. And then I think once you get to politics, in my opinion, when it comes to a school, you have to let the kids run that discussion and then they can convince each other. The teacher should not be t uh, convincing kids of anything that's like current politics, in my opinion. So should he have gotten fired? I don't think he should have gotten fired. I do think it was inappropriate, though, uh, based on what I saw. Okay. Well, we're talking about schools. So we saw some, I saw this interesting article, New York Times was talking about a lot Wait, of Wait, do schools. you think he should be fired before we go on? Do yeah. I think he should be fired? Yeah, yeah. No, I don't think he should be fired. I think he should be reprimanded. Yeah. I think that, you know, there should be some punishment because like you said, it really deals with the fact that he said he was going to tone that back and he didn't. Right. So I feel like that's more at issue than what he was actually teaching. Right. I looked at some of the stuff he was teaching and it wasn't really that bad. Some of it was definitely very agenda-based right. and definitely right. you know, one-sided, but I, I don't think he should have gotten fired. No, right, right. I don't think he should have gotten fired. But we were talking about schools and there was a New York Times article talking about the fact that a lot of schools are going to just four days now, yeah. just Monday through Thursday, and they're taking Fridays off. And this is becoming a little bit of a problem for people who don't have you know, additional childcare help for their children on that extra day. Yeah. And I know, again, you've, we've talked about the fact that you were a principal, you're a superintendent. Do you agree with, the, do you think it's a good idea, I should say, for schools to go to four days? Yeah, and to back up, you know, the schools I ran. So yeah, I, no. I think it's a terrible idea. But okay. but let me explain like a little bit of the context here, which uh -huh. is, I think schools are the the most important uh, mechanism of childcare in this country. Absolutely. And you know what what worries me a little bit is that Democrats traditionally are the ones who want to expand childcare. They want more resources yeah. to childcare. But generally speaking, but they they are more likely to be supportive of rolling back the length of a school day the requirements on teachers and educators to be in buildings than anybody else. And that that to me means that they, there's a huge hypocrisy at the heart of the way Democrats talk about the issue of childcare. And as context, when I was a school principal, our school day, in the, at least in the beginning, was 7.30 to 5 p.m. Oh, wow. And we used to offer Saturday school every other Saturday. Mm -hmm. And even on breaks, I would stay. Mm -hmm. and, and we would pay teachers actually who want to stay, but I would stay for spring break, for example. And oh, I would wow. run like a reading academy so uh, for um, kids who um, both needed extra help and parents who needed the, yeah. the childcare. And the number one reason why parents chose our schools were because of the childcare, not mm -hmm. because of how excellent our math and reading was, mm -hmm. not because of anything else about our model, but they knew they, they work a lot. They yeah. knew that they could trust that their kid could be at our school. 
And so that is what concerns me about this is that I think that this this rollback really hurts kids and families. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I, I wonder if we didn't have this experience with the pandemic where we know that we could do remote at the push of a button. Yeah. We know we can like mess around with the school week and school day at a, at a moment's notice. Uh, I think that now that school systems know they can get away with that, they're going to use it more and more and more until, until they're held accountable for it. Well, it's the pajama class, right? Yeah. Like this new class of workers who can just work from home yeah. and pretty much effectively never have to step back in an office again. Right. And teaching, I don't think teaching Can't is be that. that. Yeah. yeah. Because we've seen a lot of data to suggest that a lot of kids just did not fare well on the Zoom classes and online when we were in the hype of the pandemic. Right. I think there's three things you have to consider here. It's what's best for the students, what's best for the parents, and what's best for the teacher. Yeah. And I think this type of idea may sound best for the teacher, but the students should come first yeah. in any type of education scenario. And I don't think it's best for the students. And any job can suffer from burnout, you know, like because right. what I read in this article was that they're saying, oh, well, you know, we, we don't want to deal with teacher shortages and the teachers feel burnt out. Any job can suffer from that. Nurses, police officers, people who make TV shows, any <laughs> job can suffer from burnout. And there's just certain jobs you just cannot do from home. And I understand the teachers don't make as much as they need to make in this right. country in certain areas. But at the end of the day, it's about what's best for the children, what's best for our society is for children to be, you know, educated. And they can't get that. I think just having that extra day is just another day they're not learning. Yeah. And, and I think that the New York Times, uh, which reported on this, in one way did some really good reporting in the sense that they connected the dots between Michigan, Oregon, Washington, mm -hmm. Florida. I mean, this isn't Utah. Mm -hmm. This is like a, a phenomenon happening all around the country. Mm -hmm. So in, in that sense, I'm, I, I, I really respect their reporting, but they do infantilize the teachers. There's the, you know, obligatory Randy Weingarten union quote about how hard it is to be a teacher, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I get it. Yeah. Like teaching I mean, you, is you really definitely hard. get it. I mean, teaching you, you is super hard, mm -hmm. but like ask yourself if this were a surgeon and they're like, all right, you know, like it's, I'm burnt out. Let's stop doing surgeries on Fridays. And you'd be like, yeah. what the fuck? Like, yeah. I'm like not going to live yeah. if I don't get this. That's yeah. what treating kids in urban environments or kids at risk should be. We should treat it that urgently. Absolutely. And we're so casual about these things. And I think that this is a disgrace. And I think that Democrats tend to be apologists for this more than anybody else. Like Randy Weingarten, who's a, who's quoted here, you know, who is she standing side by side with? She's, she's standing side by side with Ter Terry McAuliffe. Right. Um, and Republicans had a field day with that. Like yeah. um, th there were a lot of Republicans and libertarians who were saying putting Randy Weingarten um, in Virginia in advertisements is the equivalent of Youngkin would have done that with Trump. Now, I don't yeah. think that's an exact yeah. comparison, but Close. I do think it's incendiary in many ways because like there are some uh, the Democratic Party is becoming the party that will make excuses for teachers at all costs. They mm -hmm. don't even consider the other stakeholders in mm -hmm. many places. And this is going to really come back to haunt them. Yeah, because you just pointed out one of the biggest things when we talk about at risk children. It's so important for them to be in school more, because if you think about the neighborhoods they have to go home to, any more time they can have away from that is better. Right. Because you can literally talk about the difference between saving a kid's life from being out on the street somewhere when some shooting happens. Instead, they're in a classroom. Right. Not to mention parents in that particular situation, a lot of single parents. Parents, they simply don't have the means to pay for extra childcare on a Friday like that. Right. But experts say it's not ideal for every school, including those with high poverty rates, where a large number of students rely on free or reduced lunch. Another possible negative, finding childcare on that fifth weekday. So this is definitely something that I think we both kind of agree on is just it's not not a real workable model. But hopefully the, the Democrat Party will realize that at some point. But in Illinois, there is this weird thing going on. Newly proposed legislation in Springfield would make Illinois residents who refuse to get the COVID vaccine pay their hospital bills out of pocket. State Representative Jonathan Carroll wrote that bill. He's a politician in the Illinois state government, 
And he is proposing a law that would essentially make it where if you were unvaccinated and you get COVID, you have to pay for all of your medical bills with COVID because you were unvaccinated. Yeah. And it's kind of like a thing to kind of go against the unvaccinated and say, hey, if you're gonna if you're gonna be irresponsible and not get vaccinated, this is the cost you're gonna have to pay. But it's like, hasn't the mantra for Democrats for the for the last 10 plus years been universal health care and this whole notion of not punishing people for pre-existing conditions? What if somebody has a pre-existing condition that makes it where they can't get vaccinated? This seems very hypocritical. Yeah, this was Representative Jonathan Carroll. I think he represents the northern suburbs of Chicago. And and I'm with you. I think even if you take the pre-existing conditions part out of this, mm-hmm. I've had so many discussions with uh, my progressive friends around things like lifestyle choices, obesity, smoking. Yeah, yeah. And they are the people most likely to say, like, don't judge people for the mm-hmm. life choices. They are, mm-hmm. And often it's situational. It has to do with whether you grew up in poverty or what mm-hmm. the culture is, mm-hmm. yada, yada, yada. Yeah. And they're like, don't, we don't want to punish people for those choices. We want them to have access to to healthcare regardless of those choices. And I, I would ask that they, as much as I want people to be vaccinated, Yeah. We have to be consistent on this. Like not being vaccinated is a choice to ignore science, in my opinion, and take a health risk. And if we're going to close off the possibility of accessing government-run healthcare to those people, then we should do it for people who choose to smoke, for people who eat the wrong things. I mean, we should apply it to all things. Yeah, but I don't totally agree that that choice is totally like, oh, I don't, I hate science. I don't trust science. I think there are some people who one may have legitimate reasons for not being, which vaccinated, I think he carves out in this. But I think it, such as being allergic to certain things yeah. and things like that but also there are people who just like for instance in the african-american community there's a lot of hesitancy towards vaccines and it doesn't have anything to do with oh you know we don't trust science it has to do with oh we've been experimented with before with things like the tuskegee experiment and so right. there are certain groups that just have a hesitancy to, to do anything the government or any authority tells them to do now I, I do totally agree that there is this conspiracy theory among people who don't want to get vaccinated among some of them and that's become very problematic and when i saw this i said to myself it should be that, and there's no way to legislate this, but it should be that if you spread misinformation about vaccines deliberately, yeah. then you should have to pay for your bills. I'd, I'd be totally yeah. down with something like See, that. Like, but all there's that, no way to legislate. But yeah, even that, like to me, but to your point, like assuming what you like what you said, which is like there are legitimate reasons not to get vaccinated. Of course, if you have allergy mm-hmm. or pre-existing conditions, etc. Religious yeah, exempts. And I think all those are I think accounted for in the bill. But pretend for a second that that that, that that's not true. The premise though of this bill is that, which is yeah. he's saying if you're ignoring science, we're gonna punish you for that. But there's so many people that ignore science every. I think no, everybody. But that's what I'm saying. Like, I think, yeah, the, the I think we're in agreement on that. Yeah. yeah, the vast majority of society ignores science. We have flat earthers. Are we gonna punish flat earthers and say you can't get? So that's the question is like, like, where do you like, where do you stop here? And I think if I were running my own city, like I'm a little bit more draconian on this kind of stuff. I would be Singapore like in terms of my wellness. Like I would be like, you get more resources if you make good choices, but I don't run a city. Right. I live in a world where I want some consistency of Mm -hmm. the people around me. And in general, I think this is way too far. And and if they were going to do this, then I think we got to open up a lot more things. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be moving to Ravi City uh, anytime. (laughs) So I, I do. I do agree with being, you know, have the health and fitness. But, you know, it's like, you know, I don't know. That city sounds a bit uh, like happy a and healthy and energetic. Yeah. Yeah. But like you're forcing the happiness. So incentivizing it. In- incentivizing it. It's a clever way yeah. of describing it. Yeah. Coming up, we're going to have an interview with Beth Shelburne about the horrible conditions of Alabama state prisons.
All right, everybody, we're going to have a little interview today with Beth Shelburne, who is an investigative reporter from Alabama. We're going to be talking a little bit about a humanitarian crisis happening in Alabama state prisons. It's gotten so bad that the Department of Justice is actually suing the state of Alabama and the state of Alabama may actually lose control over their state prisons to the federal government. Um, Beth what is really going on here? I mean, this is making national headlines. Talk to us a little bit about this humanitarian crisis, the conditions of these prisons, and how has it gotten so bad there? Yeah, um, I've been covering the crisis here for almost a decade now. And I think the thing that stands out most to me is the normalization of extreme violence. I mean, when you think of mm -hmm. prisons and jails around the country, you think, okay, violence happens. But in Alabama, it's really violent prisons on steroids. And what that looks like is rapes, assaults, murders happening at all hours of the day and night. And people that are incarcerated here really live in constant fear um, and in a state of absolute trauma. Um, we have a, a proliferation of drug trafficking in our prisons. Um, and so with cooperation from corrupt staff, drug traffickers are bringing in huge quantities of hard drugs like fentanyl, heroin, methamphetamines. Overdose deaths are at a record high. What happens when you've got those kinds of substances coming into this kind of environment that's overcrowded and full of people that came into the system with substance use problems is they're boxed in by drug traffickers and by all of these substances and they start using and they get in debt. And so we have extreme cases of human trafficking happening in our prisons where people get so in debt for drug use inside the prisons that they will sell their body. There have been documented cases of kidnappings inside the prisons where someone is held in a cell against their will and assaulted for days to pay off debts. And it's happening, um, people outside the prisons are being victimized as well. Um, family members are being extorted because of these drug debts. They'll get a phone call from a drug dealer inside a prison saying, you need to cash at me $300 or I'm going to kill your son. And so oh, it's wow. created this real um, crisis of confidence in the system. And as you said, a humanitarian crisis that's happening behind the walls. There's also been widespread neglect of the actual facilities. And so couple that with the extreme overcrowding, the conditions are disgusting. The prisons are filled with rats and roaches that get into people's food, that get into their cells where they sleep. There was actually a video released recently by some guys on the inside that had a cell phone of mm -hmm. rats that they had captured in their cells, half a dozen rats in plastic bottles. And the department's response to that was that the incarcerated people were exaggerating the problem. And so there's been a real wow. unwillingness on the part of state leaders to honestly acknowledge the crisis that's going on inside the prisons. I mean, that just sounds awful. That 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 sounds hellish. Um, so let's talk a little bit about how it got this bad, because I know a few years ago there was there was some efforts in the Alabama state legislature to try to do something to kind of push these prisons forward as far as reform. And then I think in 2018, um, a man by the name of Jimmy Spencer was out on parole 
and actually killed three people. And that just sort of kind of set the clock back like decades as far as reform in Alabama prisons. Can you talk a little bit about the system and just how it got this bad as far as just reform? Yeah, I mean, I've really come to understand our prison crisis as a policy decision. The result of decisions have led to this crisis. We can't just accept that prisons are going to be a bloodbath 24 um, seven. Mm-hmm. You know, that's just unacceptable. And so it's um, a combination of politics. It's always been popular to appear tough on crime and in the Bible belt, you know, for a lot of people that means cruelty. That means manual labor. That means exploitation of incarcerated people. We're a death penalty state. You know, all of that has helped people get elected because it's sort of built into the Alabama frontier of this punishment mindset and tough on crime mindset. I think that um, one thing people don't realize, I've, I've done the research of looking at the history of the Alabama prison system And the prisons have literally always been overcrowded. From their very inception after the Civil War, they opened up as overcrowded facilities. And the reason why is because we incarcerate far too many people for too long. And those are policy decisions. So for example, we have one of the most ridiculous draconian three strikes laws in the nation. It's called the Habitual Felony Offender Act. People on the inside call it the bitch law. And it resulted in hundreds and thousands of inflated sentences, many of them life sentences or what we call virtual life sentences for crimes that didn't always even result in a physical injury. And so that law was passed at kind of the dawn on the tough on crime era in the late 1970s. And it resulted in filling up our prisons with these terminal sentences and now 25% of our prison population is over the age of 50. So we have all these people that have aged out of being any kind of danger to the public, but they're being warehoused in these prisons with no way out. And you mentioned the Jimmy Spencer murder that happened in mm-hmm. 2018, and that was a tragic case. He was paroled, and he was actually a decent candidate for parole, but he wasn't properly supervised, and he ended up mm-hmm. getting back on drugs. And now he's accused of murdering three people. So instead of really looking at that particular case and trying to evaluate where the system failed, our leaders in this very knee-jerk, predictable way decided, we don't need to parole anybody. We are going to stop paroling anyone and everyone who's been convicted of a violent offense, no matter how much time they've served, no matter how they've worked to rehabilitate themselves, and it's resulted in an absolute shutdown in our parole system. Our parole grant rate went from 54% before Jimmy Spencer to just 15%. And oh, so wow. we've got this overcrowding crisis. And meanwhile, we've got Alabama leaders digging in saying, we're going to keep everybody locked up. And that's just emblematic of, of why this problem persists. Yeah, it doesn't seem like they're assessing this by a case-by-case basis. It just seems like they're just trying to do a one-size-fits-all policy, and it's really ruining these prisons. I think a lot of Americans, and especially in the Bible Belt where you're at, think about prisoners. They think, oh, these people have broken the law. They've done something horrible. They deserve to be there. And I think even Governor Kay Ivey in Alabama, when she was pressed on this issue, said something to the effect of, don't you think these people need to pay a price? So can you just talk a little bit about 
that humility that we should be showing and sort of kind of the humanity that we should be showing towards these prisoners and why we should care. Why should we care about the fact that these prisoners are going through these horrible conditions? Yeah, I mean, you know, every single person that's incarcerated in prisons and jails around the country and in Alabama is somebody's loved one. Someone loves that person, their fathers, brothers, uh, sons, husbands, mothers, daughters, and their lives have value. Um, the majority of them are indigent. They come from a poor background with no means. Um, many of them are uneducated. We have a very low literacy rate in Alabama's prison system. Um, and a lot of them, you know, were really mixed up in substance use or had untreated mental illness. And because of the lack of resources at the community level, they committed crimes and ended up in prison. So we tell them, we're going to send you to a correctional facility where we can correct your behavior, but we put them in this horrifically traumatic environment that's incredibly violent, incredibly corrupt. And then we say, we're not going to let you out because we think you haven't paid enough time. And so you have to really ask yourself, especially I think in the Bible Belt, um, who is benefiting from this? And why are we doing this to people? Because, you know, if we're supposed to be this Christian state, we're supposed to believe in redemption. We're supposed to believe in second chances. So we're not really walking the walk as far as, you know, I think how most Alabamians would describe their moral compass in the state. I think that, you know, the bottom line is, um, we like to think that we are Americans. We treat people fairly and humanely. Um, we don't engage in torture or abuse. And that is a lie. And I've had to really, you know, face that as a citizen and decide to use my work to amplify these issues because it's unacceptable to me to have these kinds of tortures and horrors going on in our communities behind prison walls. And that's exactly what's been happening for decades. Yeah, it sounds totally unacceptable. And it sounds unconstitutional as well, if you just think about the Eighth Amendment and, you know, the fact that we're not supposed to use cruel and unusual punishment against anyone, regardless of the crime they've committed. So let's talk a little bit about the path forward. How can Alabama reform itself so that it doesn't lose control of its prisons to the federal government? Are there some concrete measures that you can think of? And how passable will any of these measures be in a place like the Alabama State Legislature, where they have a supermajority of Republicans who, again, like you said earlier, they run on this tough on crime platform. So it just seems like it'll be extremely unlikely that they would be able to do anything as far as reform when it comes to these issues. Yeah, reform is an incredibly frustrating game in Alabama. Mm -hmm. Criminal justice reform, probably um, the most frustrating. Um, you know, you mentioned the legislature and I had talked about this politics of fear um, the legislature is really deferential to prosecutors, law enforcement, and the crime victims lobby. And all three of those groups are obstructionist when it comes to reforms. So the reforms that have passed in the state really amount to nibbling around the edges. We haven't done anything dramatic like reevaluate our habitual offender law or look at some of these elderly people in prison and think about second chance sentencing. There has been absolutely no work done on reuniting families and extracting people from these hell holes. It's all been about 
building more. And we know that that doesn't work because that's been the state's response every time the federal government has called us out on our unconstitutional prisons, which has happened time and time again. The last big time when it was system-wide was in the 70s. And Alabama's response then was to build more prisons. And we built nine major facilities in the 80s and 90s. And all of them are in crisis right now. So we know that building more is not going to result in better humane conditions. What we need to do is get people out of prison. We need to um, really reform our, our drug laws, decriminalize marijuana, the number one crime of conviction that sends people to prison in Alabama, possession of a controlled substance. In other mm -hmm. states, that is a ticketed misdemeanor. And in Alabama, it can send you to prison for years. It's ridiculous. And so we really need to get real and stop letting fear dictate, you know, how we make these decisions. I think that this plan to build new mega prisons has really been commandeered by prison profiteers like CoreCivic. And unfortunately, that mm -hmm. is who our Republican leaders have listened to. Wow. Pitched it as an economic boom to some of these small towns which is really kind of sick if you think about it. I mean, it's caging people as a commodity. You know, we should never look at criminal justice as an economic incentive, um, and especially incarceration. So on the flip side, the state, you know, does really financially benefit from keeping people locked up. We have a dozen or so minimum security work centers where minimum security inmates are sent out into the community to work minimum wage jobs or state jobs where they're paid $2 a day. So if I'm the Alabama Highway Department, I take out a contract with Alabama's Department of Corrections for 20 guys to work on the roads for $20 a day per head. The Alabama mm. Department of Corrections is only going to pay those workers $2 a day. So they're pocketing oh, wow. 18 bucks for every person working for every day they're working. That's a lot of money that goes into the coffers. And I think that when you look at all of these things happening at the same time, the drop in paroles, um, you know, all of these guys that are stuck in these minimum wage jobs in these facilities that are supposed to be short term, it's a justification for building more. And that is really about making money. It's not about justice. So some of these guys, I, I talk to people regularly who are in the prison system and they've, they've told me, we feel like slaves, you know, working these kinds of jobs with no end in sight. It's really hopeless right now. So I think the federal government taking over our prison system wouldn't necessarily be a bad thing. Yeah, it's, it sounds like there's definitely a change that needs to happen there. And uh, we want to thank you, Beth, for coming on our show and, and talking to us about all this, because I don't think it's something that gets talked about enough. And I don't think really anybody outside of Alabama or even a lot of people in Alabama even know how bad these prisons are or how bad this problem is. Um, we want to thank you for your work that you're doing down there. I know you've been doing some reporting for the ACLU and uh, um, we appreciate you coming on 
and giving us this really important information. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you for for giving some time to this important topic. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, thank you to Beth Shelburne for giving us that information. Just some heart-wrenching stuff going on in these Alabama prisons. You know, Ravi, I'm from Alabama originally, and it is really easy to get arrested and go to jail in Alabama for just any little thing. And so I have have relatives that have been in the Alabama prison system. I have friends who've been in that system. And I just didn't know to what extent the conditions they were dealing with. It doesn't sound like something that would happen in the United States of America. Yeah, and my dad lived for, I think, something like 20 years in mm-hmm. Alabama, and and he was down in Foley, which is, you know, that yeah. county is where, you know, Brian Stevenson, for example, writes about, like, a lot of his cases are coming out of there. It's like a terribly unequal system down there. And my brother is a corrections officer. Oh, at, wow. Yeah, in a federal prison, and he often tells me of all the challenges. I'm not going to out him too much about what he says there's just massive problems in the federal system mm-hmm. and that's a much more well-resourced system yeah. than these state systems and then you introduce all the politics of the towns that make money and have yeah. jobs from these things Very and then elected judges in some places you know we dealt with this in mississippi and it's it's tragic and i think it's in need of serious reform and just an awesome interview and really really hard to watch but really important stuff absolutely well we thank you all for watching us today make sure to subscribe to the lost debate on youtube make sure to check us out on spotify apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcast from make sure to rate us on there as well thank you all for watching we'll see you next time